Let's open up our Bibles now, though, to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We are moving right along in the book of Romans. It's taken us some two and a half years to get to this point, but we've got two chapters left. Romans chapter 15, and once you're there, let's stand up together in honor of the word of the Lord. I'm going to be reading the first seven verses of this chapter of Romans 15, but we're really focusing this morning on verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you. We do rejoice that you have given to us in your kindness this living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, that you have given us your word, that we can hear the voice of our God, that we can come to know you, that by your Spirit's work through your word, we have been transformed from death into life and blindness into sight. I pray, God, that your Spirit's working through your word this morning would, would accomplish in us further sanctification, further transformation into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'm just going to say it's good to have the pulpit back this week. After last Sunday, we had moved things out of the way for the kids, and it's better to have this than the music stand over there, which is far too flimsy and feeble and a pain to preach from. I hope to never do it again. Well, Romans chapter 14 that we finished up a couple weeks ago, it ends with this statement, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul here in this statement is getting to the very heart of Christian living, really the very heart of Christian thinking. He, he says it in the positive in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do everything for the glory of God. Here in, at the end of Romans 14, he says it in the negative, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Really, the ultimate aim of everything in all the universe, all of, all of God's good creation, all of his, all of his working in, within that creation is aimed at one thing. It's aimed at his glory. If you're a member of this church, I trust that is not an earth-shattering statement for you to be hearing. But if that's true, then the goal of our lives, the aim of our lives, is to magnify the glory of God. It's important for us to, to remind ourselves in the way that we talk about things. We talk about glorifying God with our lives or magnifying the glory of God. 
bringing glory to God. We need to remind ourselves that we can in no way add to God's glory. When we use those expressions, we are not talking about increasing the glory of God, adding to the glory of God. God's glory is not dependent on our actions whatsoever. No matter what we do or no matter what we do not do, God is infinitely glorious, eternally glorious. It would be completely impossible for God to either increase or decrease in glory. So so it's not about the things we do and the things that we don't do adding to God's glory. But that being said, we are commanded numerous times in Scripture to glorify God, to bring Him glory by our actions, to, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God is glorious. God is magnificent. God is far and exceedingly above and beyond anything else. But the truth is, many people are simply unaware of that. As we've seen in the book of Romans in the early chapters, all people are without excuse. All they have to do is open their eyes and look at the world around them. Or I suppose if they were born blind, all they have to do is hear the world around them or sense the world around them. And they know that there is a God. They know there is one who made all things to whom we are accountable, but most people in the world are unaware of the greatness of God, the majesty of God. And so we as Christians are called to magnify his glory, to to proclaim it, to display it in all that we do, to to display with our very lives and in our words, yes, in our actions, the infinite greatness and majesty of God. To, to exalt the fullness and the excellencies of all who God is with our very lives and all that we do and all that we don't do. And so Romans chapters 14 and 15 have been showing us one particular way we can do that. One particular way that Christians can display and magnify the glory of God. One, one way that Christians can can open the eyes of people around us to see just how glorious God is. And that way is our unity with one another. It is an eye-opener to the world of the glory and majesty of God. Paul makes that connection for us in the verses we just read. Starting in verse 5, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So if we remember, as we, as we come to, again, this topic of unity that Paul is bringing us to, we remember there's a particular issue going on within the Roman church among these Roman Christians, Jew and Gentile, involving divisions that came over what we call matters of indifference. These are not things commanded of us in Scripture or forbidden in Scripture. In their case, it had to do with food. What can we eat and what can't we eat? It had to do with drinking. Uh, What we can and can't eat and drink. It had to do with holy days. Must we observe uh, certain days different than other days? And Paul breaks them down in these two categories. There are those of of stronger faith, with a stronger conscience. And there are those of a weaker faith, with a weaker conscience. And the the strong, as Paul identifies them, say, all food is clean. We can eat whatever we want to eat. All days are holy. We don't have to observe 
special feasts and holy days. Every day is holy unto the Lord. And the weak, those with weaker faith or weaker conscience, were were conscience-bound. I'm not allowed to eat certain foods. I must abstain from eating the meat that I've purchased in the market. I must abstain from eating pork or whatever it is. And they, they felt obligated as well to observe certain Old Testament feasts and holy days. What Paul's doing is he looks at these two groups of people, and we've seen it over and over again in chapter 14, is he's calling for unity among them. He's calling for the believers in Rome and, by extension, us to be unified with one another. And now, in this particular disagreement, Paul sides with the strong. He's told us a couple different times, and he even tells us in some of his other letters, look, the strong, they're right about this. You really can eat whatever you want. But he's careful to instruct them to consider their weaker brothers and sisters, to be sensitive to the consciences of others and and to not flaunt their own liberties. Paul's concern here, and really it's God who's writing this through the Apostle Paul, is that there would not be divisions among us. There would not be divisions among his people over these kinds of issues. There is so much at stake in the unity of the church. We're we're tempted to take lightly how much is at stake in the unity of the church. But what we see in this passage is nothing less than the glory of God is at stake in the unity of the church. When, When we are not unified, when we have divisions, this world that is looking to us that they might see the glory of God through us is actually seeing something that, that blinds them even further to the glory of God. It's, it's that important. Douglas Moo says, divisions in the church over non-essentials divert precious time and energy from the basic mission, the proclamation of the gospel and the glorifying of God. So the, the commands that Paul gives us, what he's been instructing us in Romans 14 and these com- the, the commands we'll see here now as we come into chapter 15, are vital to our glorifying God. This, this thing that is our central job, is a cent- the, it is the reason why when you were converted, God just didn't stop your heart on the spot. Well, you did it. You're in. I might as well bring you in. No, you're here. And the reason you're here is to glorify God. And essential too, we cannot overstate the importance of our unity with one another in glorifying God. It is that important. So, 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 so God has gone to great lengths through the Apostle Paul to instruct us, to remind us of our profound obligation to one another. We've had a full chapter, and now we're moving into chapter 15, and he's still going on it. That's how important it is. And so in this passage, we're going to see from Paul a command, and then an example, and then the purpose for all of this. First, he reiterates this command that we've already gotten in different forms. Look at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. So the strong are commanded, and and I will remind you that we all sort of view ourselves as the strong in other words, on any dispute, that, that any matter of conscience, we always think we're right. That's why we believe what we believe. And so Paul says to every single one of us, you have a responsibility to not please yourself, but to please others. 
Christian, that's your responsibility. Not to please yourself, but to please others. The strong are to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. In other words, don't judge them, don't condemn them, don't disregard them. And again, Paul sides with the, song, the strong here. What does, he, what does he call it that the weak have? Bear with the failings of the weak. Paul is siding with the strong. He's going, look, you're right. You're right about this. Bear with their fragility. Bear with their weakness. And again, we're not talking about sin. We have to constantly remind ourselves of this. We're not talking about sin. These verses, these, these passages get used by people to say, and so you should just condone people's sin. You should affirm it. You should even celebrate it. That's your obligation as a Christian. That is not what Paul's talking about. If we affirm sin, if we tolerate sin, we are not doing good for our brother. Paul says we bear with the failings of the weak for their good. Romans chapter 13, in verse 10, Paul has already told us, love does no harm to his neighbor. And if we affirm sin, we are doing great, grave harm. So that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says we're to defer to, we're to encourage our brothers and sisters for the purpose of, he says, building them up for their good. Ray Steadman paints a picture for us of, of what this is like. He says, we can compare this to crossing a swinging bridge over a mountain stream. Some people can run across a bridge like that, even though it doesn't have handrails. They're not concerned about the swing of the bridge or the danger of falling into the torrent below. But others are very uncertain on such a bridge. They shake and they tremble and they inch along. They may even, may even get down on their hands and knees and crawl across the bridge. It's like that with these moral questions of gray areas. It would be cruel for someone who had the freedom to cross boldly to take the arm of someone who was timid and force him to run across. He might even lose his balance and fall off the bridge. That's the, the, the picture Paul is painting for us here. We're to bear with one another's failings. Literally, that word is to carry them, to endure them. It's what mature, strong Christianity looks like. Is bearing with the failings of our brothers and sisters. Who, who is the brother or the sister in this church who annoys you the most? You're probably thinking of them right at this moment. That, that one who doesn't dress the way you think they ought to dress for church. That, that parent whose kids just simply make too much noise. That older Christian who is just, let's be honest, grumpy. The person who always seems to see things differently than you see them. Believer, you are called to bear with them. Whoever it is that came to mind when I said the word annoy, you are to bear with them. You are to welcome them. You are to encourage them. You are to walk with them. Never to simply dismiss them or write them off. You're certainly not to, to go about talking about them and belittling them to other believers in this church. You're not supposed to despise them because of your own preferences. Paul says both here and in Philippians 2 that every single one of us should be putting the interests of others, their growth, their good, above our own. And again, we're not talking about serving, serving people's selfishness. 
But what Paul is calling all of us to is selflessness, sacrificial living. Paul's not telling us to enable people's selfishness. He's already told us we're to do everything for the glory of God. That whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And so he is not telling us, now go be people pleasers. Don't worry about your convictions and don't worry about God. Just please all the people around. That's not what Paul's saying. We're to please our neighbor by doing good for him, by considering him, by building him up, by encouraging his faith. Christian thinking, strong, mature Christian thinking, as Paul lays it out for us here, is this. How is what I'm doing or not doing contributing to the spiritual good of those around me in the church? That's how we ought to think about everything in our lives. How's the way I dress contribute to the spiritual health of the people around me? How does the way I sing contribute to the spiritual good of the people around me? How does the way I speak contribute to the spiritual good of those around me? How do the looks that I give to people contribute to the spiritual good of people around me? How does the way I behave at basketball games contribute to the spiritual good of people around me? We, we ought to consider these things in our lives, in every area of our life. That is what Paul's calling us to. But it, it is not just catering to the selfishness of other people. Thomas Schreiner says, pleasing others to advance their selfish interests is excluded. But pleasing others so that they will be stronger in the faith is a beautiful quality. That's what we're doing. We want to build one another up. And we want to be always considering, how can I build up this person? And so Paul commands us, don't please yourself. Please others for their good. Second, then we see the example in Christ. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. Well, why should we please others and not ourselves? Well, Paul says, because that's the example that Christ set for us. The, the Lord of glory, born in a stable. The King of kings, yet came to be a servant came to give his life as a ransom for many. The author of all life, freely giving himself up to die on a cruel cross. That's the Savior we follow. That's the King whom we serve. So if his life, the second person of the triune Godhead, if his earthly life was characterized by such selfless, humble sacrifice then brothers and sisters, every time we put ourselves first, we are being, in our arrogance, decidedly unchristlike. Think about that. Every single time we put ourselves first. Every time we consider our own good over the good of our brothers and sisters, we are being not only arrogant, we are being unchristlike. Paul quotes here from Psalm 69 to prove that Christ didn't please himself. He says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul points to the scripture and said, this, this shows you. This is what Christ did. He pleased his father by bearing our shame, by, by accomplishing our redemption through his sinless life and ultimately his death in our place on a shameful, torturous cross. 
And then after, after Paul quotes from Psalm 69, he adds a statement for us about the whole Old Testament, about how we ought to approach it, and, and now ultimately about all Scripture in general. He says this in verse 4. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. We should learn a lesson from our brother Paul here. Paul, remember, is a towering intellect. There's a reason that we come to things in the book of Romans and we go, I'm not sure I'm even tracking with this. This is very confusing. This is very high and lofty. Paul, Paul is a towering giant of intellect, highly educated. And yet for Paul, it is not his wisdom, it is not his intelligence, it is not all his learning that he leans on. For Paul, Scripture puts an end to all arguments. When Scripture speaks, it speaks with infallible authority. John Stott, commenting on this passage, says, From this thoughtful statement, it's legitimate to derive five truths about Scripture, which we would do well to remember. And I just want to list them out for you. He talks about the contemporary intention of Scripture. The, the Bible was, of course, written to an original audience, an original place, at an original time. But Paul makes it clear it is for our instruction, for the education of all the people of God. And so we, it's right for us to study the book of Romans, even though we aren't those original Romans that Paul wrote this letter to. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for all of God's people. Second, he talks about the inclusive value of Scripture. Every word of Scripture, every word breathed out by God, every word profitable. He says, whatever was written was written for our instruction. Now, does that mean we assign equal weight to every single verse in the Bible? No, of course we don't. And the way you know that we don't is if you were lying on your deathbed, you wouldn't whisper to your family in your final breaths, please read to me from the book of Leviticus. Let me hear of what to be done with one who has come in contact with leprosy. No, you're not going to ask them to read that. But brothers and sisters, every single word is profitable for you. Every single word breathed out by God. There is not one too many words, and there is not one too few words. We have been given the voice of God perfectly in Scripture. Third, he speaks of the Christological focus of Scripture. Jesus himself said on a couple of occasions, all Scripture is pointing to me. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he said to the teachers of the law, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Fourth, he speaks of the practical purposes of Scripture. It's able to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ, Paul writes in 2 Timothy. It, it gives us hope of salvation. It is able to give us endurance and encouragement, he tells us in this passage here. It gives us hope of the glory of God, the, the hope of eternal life, the hope of the redemption of the body, the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, the, the hope of our dwelling with God forever. It is, it is able to cause us to look beyond time to eternity. It's able to cause us to look beyond our momentary sufferings to our eternal future 
glory. Fifth, this is because of the divine message of Scripture. Verse 4 here in our text attributes endurance and encouragement to the Scriptures. And then verse 5 calls God the God of endurance and encouragement. And so it's God Himself who is speaking to us through Scripture. And God continues to speak through what He has spoken. He's not only speaking to the Romans, a word of endurance and encouragement, He is speaking to, to you and I, a word of endurance and encouragement. The Word of God is alive. We pray that every week. We remind ourselves every week. The Word of God is filled with supernatural power. It lifts us to the heavenlies by the Holy Spirit's power so that we can behold the Lord Jesus Christ, our life, our hope, our Savior, our King. So the Bible is nothing less than the very living Word of God to us. Everything in the Bible was written for us, for our education, for our encouragement, for our endurance, for our hope of glory. It is eternally valuable. It is supernaturally powerful. No other book is like this. I have an office full of great books. None of them are like this. No podcast can rise to this level. No devotional can compete with this. When you read Jesus Calling, and she claims that it is God speaking to you, it is not God speaking to you. It is her speaking to you and lying to you and telling you that God is speaking to you. It's a good book to throw away if you got a copy of it. Or anything else by her, by the way. Some of you are like, I'm done with this man. We don't get to claim that God is speaking and then speak for Jesus and write a book about it. God is speaking in Scripture. Nothing else rises to this level. It's absolutely not true. Nothing compares. That's why Charles Spurgeon, who was incredibly well-read, said, visit many, good, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. The, the study of God's Word produces in the believer endurance. It produces in the believer encouragement. It produces in the believer hope of the glory of God. The, the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes as we read, as we study, as we hear the Word of God preached. And that Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, ministers to us all the grace necessary for life and godliness, according to 2 Peter 1. And so the Scripture is the word of God's grace to us. It is the first and primary means of grace to the believer. We're not saved apart from the word of God. We're not sanctified apart from the word of God. We're not... We're not upheld apart from the word of God. It is, it is tied to all that is God's doing. It is the first and primary means of grace. It's not the only means of grace. We're sitting here in this room because corporate worship is a means of God's grace to us. Singing together is a means of God's grace to us. Coming to the Lord's table is a means of God's grace to us. But there's, there's nothing that eclipses the word of God that he has given to us. 
Paul says here, the scriptures were given to us that we might have hope. Literally, the words he uses in the Greek here, it's the hope. It's not just hope, vague hope. It's the hope, a specific hope. It's the hope known only to those who are hidden in Christ. That that glorious mystery talked about in Colossians 1, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul says God has given us the scriptures for that hope, that that, that we might have that hope. He goes on now in verse 5 to the purpose of all this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to worship God rightly, if we're going to worship God in a way that pleases Him, then a necessary precondition is unity. If we fight, if we quarrel, if we harbor bitterness and judgment towards one another, Friends, we might think that we are truly worshiping God, but we're not. We might feel like we're worshiping God. We may even come to church and get goosebumps when we sing together. And we feel like we're worshiping God, but we cannot offer true spiritual worship to God. When we harbor these things. Why? Because it is the will of God that his people worship him in unity. We have been given union with Christ and we have been given union with each other. One Holy Father planned our salvation from eternity past because he set his love on us. Because in eternity past he chose us and Set us apart for salvation. One one Lord Jesus Christ died and returned to life that he may rule as our one true king. One Holy Spirit made us spiritually alive from the dead and dwells in us, empowering us and guiding us daily. It is therefore sinful when we quarrel with one another. It is sinful not to get along with one another In the church. It is sinful when older saints give dirty looks to young families. And it is sinful for younger believers to then resent the older generations. It is sinful for God's children to fight with one another, to refuse to be of one mind because of petty annoyances and differences. It is the will of God that we would love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and that we would love one another and live together in harmony. And so Paul prays here that God would grant us true unity. Now God has already granted us true unity. This is the amazing and beautiful thing. Here in the church, all who are in Christ have true unity. Union with one another. True unity with one another. But Paul prays that we would experience that now because we don't always experience it, do we? Sin divides. But love unites. Paul prays that we would be united in such a way that we walk in that unity, that we experience that unity, that others can see that unity 
It was really just a short version of, of, of the prayer of the Lord Jesus himself and what's called his high priestly prayer, the longest prayer recorded of Jesus in Scripture. Jesus prays for the unity of the church. In John chapter 17, verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them, speaking of his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then down in verse 20, he says, I do not ask only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This is what Jesus prays for in this moment, in this time of intercession for his disciples, and then how sweet it is. He prays for us. I'm not just praying for this group of men here in this room with me. I'm praying for all who would believe on account of their word. And he prays for such perfect unity that, that we would be one with one another even as the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father Almighty have union with one another. Now that's profound. That's amazing unity. And if Jesus prayed to the Father for our unity, the Father will surely grant it to us. We can receive it. We can Walk in it. We can enjoy it now. It's not just spiritually true, but we don't really feel it. No, we can walk in this. We can walk in the light of what we know to be true, of what Christ has declared to be true in his word. Just as a husband and a wife are no longer two separate entities, but are made one through marriage, becoming one flesh, so too the people of God are many, but are made one in His Holy Spirit. And so how can we, if this is true, if this is what God has done, if this is the nature of what it means to be in Christ, and to be brought into the household of God, to be made a member of His church, then how can we, for whom Christ was crucified, how can we who have taken up our cross to follow Him, how can we who pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? We who can, by the Spirit, have confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord, have recognized ourselves as his loyal slaves. How can we be divided when we come to worship this triune God? May it never be. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we do not worship God in the unity that He has provided for us, God will not be pleased with our worship. And He will not accept it. So so before we come to worship, before we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we must get right with God by getting right with God's people. That's the command of Scripture to us. We cannot be right with God if we are not right with God's people. I've said this many times over 26, 7, 27 years of marriage. Man, fumble in public. So many times you can't, you don't get to, to be my friend if you don't like my wife. That's not a thing. If I hear you have something to say about her, then you and I are done. We're not friends. I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. In the same way, what would ever make us think we're in right standing with God if we have some sort of bitterness or feud going on with one of his other children? It does not work that way, even as sinful husbands and wives and parents. How much more so the holy God? How much more so the one who sent his son to reconcile this one whom he loves? Pay attention to these following scriptures. Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever you stand praying, Jesus says, Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that the Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. When we come to worship, and remember we have a relational problem with someone and it's on our end. Maybe they've legitimately wronged you, but you're the one harboring unforgiveness and bitterness. And let's just be honest about it, unforgiveness and bitterness feel pretty good sometimes. It feels pretty good to be wrong. To be Our whole society right now is is racing as fast. Who can be the greatest victim in this world? It feels pretty good to have victim status, to have been wronged. Jesus says here, if you've got a problem with another people, another person, and it's on your end, you're harboring unforgiveness, you're harboring bitterness, you need to repent. You need to go deal with it. Otherwise, God will not receive your worship because you are worshiping hypocritically. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, if you, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Now this time Jesus says, even if the problem isn't on your end, You need to go be reconciled. If we strive for reconciliation with one another, God accepts our worship. It's pleasing to Him. It brings glory to Him. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter says this, Likewise, husbands, husbands and wives, let's just perk our ears up right now. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He speaks directly to husbands here about being harsh with their wives. 
makes it abundantly clear that God is so displeased with that that it hinders your prayers. It's not just a one-way street. Husbands, wives, if you fight, if you quarrel, if you are harsh with your spouse, you had better pay attention to this warning in Scripture. I've been a pastor long enough to see families where husbands speak to their wives in the most harsh, unbelievable manner, and then come to church like all is well, and they're a leader in their church. And I've seen wives who are those kind of wives that Proverbs tells us, better to live on the corner of your house than to live with that woman. And then they come on Sunday morning with the most emotional, beautiful displays during the singing. May that never be true of us. Peter says, God's not listening to you when you deal with one another in that way. This call for unity extends down to our most basic and primary relationships. What's the ultimate grand purpose of this spiritual unity that we've been given by God and that we are instructed to walk in with one another? Verse 6 says, So that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful vision of the church. Together with one voice glorifying God. Here's the glorious thing. God always empowers us to do that which he commands us to do. God always empowers us to do that which he commands us to do. This on its face is beyond us. We can't do this alone. But but the same God who gives perseverance from his word, who empowers us by his Holy Spirit, with such joyful encouragement and hope, this same God empowers us to walk in deep unity with one another. He empowers us to do this, to bear with the failings of one another. God's not asking us here, please try hard. I know people are difficult. Just do your best. Work at it. It's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that God himself will enable us to do this. God will enable us to do this. But we are commanded to walk in, to rejoice in this unity. We are called to work for it. We don't just slide into it. We don't just fall into it. In our marriages, we don't just slide into happy marriages that are fruitful and life-giving and joy-producing. It takes work. But we cannot do this if we fight amongst ourselves over non-essential issues. Paul here sets the example for us of how we do this. The example he sets is prayer. At this point, he is not trying to persuade them any longer. He is calling on the Lord for supernatural intervention. This unity is beyond the reach of man. God must do it. And so if we're going to obey this instruction and walk in this unity, then we must give ourselves to prayer. We must give ourselves to prayer. A lesson I learned a long time ago 
said, if I have bitterness towards someone, it will be impossible for that bitterness to coexist with daily prayer for that person, regular prayer for that person's good, upbuilding, encouragement, joy. Those two things cannot occupy the same space. Prayer is a powerful means by which we do this. But, but he gives us this prayer right here. This prayer of the Apostle Paul to be our prayer as well. Let me just close with this, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant that that prayer would be our prayer. And be the reality of our lives and worship as a church body for the glory of God and for the joy of his people. And I will just say to us in closing, I believe the Lord has been doing a miraculous work in this area in our lives. I believe that the Lord, by his spirit, has been transforming this church to be a church that loves and encourages one another. And of course, there's farther to go. But as we commit ourselves to this intentionally, oh, there's no, there's no better place. So Spurgeon called the church the sweetest place on earth. I have felt that. I can just tell you that. Coming back from, from a sabbatical where I was completely burned out and at the end of my tether, I have felt the sweetness of the fellowship of the church. And, and would that the Lord would continue to, to grant to us one heart. One heart that we may worship with one voice. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, we rejoice in, in your work of salvation. Lord, beyond that, your work of, of placing us together in a family, in the church. And we rejoice, Lord, that you would call us to yourself. Make us your own. We rejoice that you would call us together to encourage one another, to edify one another, to build one another up. I pray that you would give us strength by your spirit and determination, that by the grace you have shown to us, we would bear with one another's weaknesses, that we would be of encouragement to each other, and that we would be those who help one another grow stronger in the faith. Lord, that each one of us would have hearts that, that are quick to Surrender our desires for the good and upbuilding of one another. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to transform us into the likeness of Christ, that this church would be a church that magnifies the glory of Christ as we scatter individually and as we gather corporately. Pray, Lord, you would do this for your own namesake, for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.